Um, hopefully you've already heard a whole lot of stuff that's got you inspired to leave here and get out of the building and talk to customers. So that's great. Uh, you've already heard a lot of great talks this morning. One of the things that has struck me, and you know, from my background a little bit, I've worked with startups for the past a lot of years, getting to the point where I don't want to say the number, um, but most of those startups have also been working within enterprises, selling to enterprises. And one of the things I found is that there is a huge variance of the problems that you have, whether you're at very early stage to you're sort of a medium company and you have customers to you're an enterprise and you are used to moving full steam ahead and you've been doing this for 30 years and you're making billions of dollars. So there's a huge range of the problems that people face, but the solutions actually are very similar from customer to customer. Uh, there are some things that you can't do in your startup, there's some things that you can't do in your enterprise, but a lot fewer than people would think. And so I could get up here and talk about things that I do at Yammer or things that I do with the startups I advise or Microsoft, but honestly, if you follow me on Twitter, you've probably heard a lot of them and also you heard some of this last year. And more interestingly, I know, because I know about customer development, that people like talking about themselves and their own problems. So what I did for this session was actually to put out a survey and ask people to volunteer to come forward and say, stand up, tell me your customer development challenges, and I will, on the spot, help you try and figure out what you can do to go forward. And my hope is that this will be more interesting than a bunch of slides would have been, even the funny slides. Also, they've made us promise not to swear too much in these talks, so you know, I gotta lean on other things here. So, uh, to kick that off, I'm just gonna go through, and I've got my handy list on my phone so I don't forget who people are, and I'll find someone, and they'll stand up and talk about their customer development challenges, and we'll spend a couple minutes talking about what they could try next. So, uh, first up, Peter. Peter, where are you? All right, let's walk over, and just tell me a little bit about the stage of your company and your biggest customer development challenge. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, our company's 30 years old. We've been making barcode data collection software for the enterprise space, so companies use our product in warehouses and manufacturing and then retail to receive products and move around. Finding, getting into those customers and finding out what else we can do for them sounds like, oh, you should be able to do that easily, but it's been very challenging because every customer wants it their way, and all their software's on-premise modified to hell and back, and so that's been our challenge in a nutshell. All right, so we've got a we've got a mature company. We've got a company that's something that you know a lot of us might not think is super high tech, but is super critical. And then trying to figure out what can we, how can we get to our customers and talk to them. Um, so one of the things that I've said a lot of times that can be a useful hack is bringing in a new person. So if you're talking to a customer who's been your customer for 20 years and they have a certain relationship with you and your meetings go a certain way, bringing in someone who's a completely new person, sometimes that person could be a new employee if you happen to have one. If not, you can uh, pick a confederate who's just someone they haven't seen before and pass them off as a new employee because you know they're not gonna see them again. And so you bring in Bob, you say, hey, Bob's new here and he would love to know what you like best about our software or what you, you, know, what you don't like and especially if there aren't other people in the room, but even if there are, the customer will often have this great conversation with Bob in which they tell you a bunch of things that they assume that you knew that you actually 
don't. The other thing, similarly, is to do that with the customer. If you ever see that they have a new employee or a more junior person, get that person, you know, call them from the herd and talk to them. So a lot of times, when we've dealt with customers in the past, uh, in my distant past, I worked for a personal finance company, made software for banks, and all the SVPs, you know, everything has to be our way, our bank is very different, none of our, our customers aren't like any other bank's customers, which is a total lie, by the way, you all have money. Um, you know, rich people are like rich people, not so rich people are like not so rich people, that's really the only distinction. But every time we had a new person, we would find a way to have a meeting with that person. You know, we try and schedule a meeting, we'd make it at a time where we could say that the, the head honchos would come, or we'd set it, you know, oh, can we have a conversation tomorrow? The only people who can show up for meetings tomorrow are the new people, the junior people, but they have interesting ideas, and a lot of times they can also kind of tell you how to get in good with other people. So if you can find someone more junior, have a conversation with them, make it clear, like, I want to learn from you, you know, you're a little bit newer here, but you also kind of know the ropes of how things are working, what could I do? And, and kind of start from there as an opening point. So that's a, that's a good kickoff. Is there anything else that uh, to, to play off that you'd like to ask? conversations that aren't the ones that you typically have. So the next one up would be Emily. Thank you. Um, my name is Emily Matmatrani. I'm the founder and CEO of 427. We provide, we help Fortune 500 companies identify climate change related risk in their operations and their supply chain. My customer development problem is that my people, the people that care about the problem that I'm trying to solve, and my network are the sustainability officers, they're the people who do environmental compliance and government affairs. They're not the risk managers. And getting to the risk managers and getting the risk managers to also see that at the risk is my challenge. How do I learn about this other group of people that has different that has different interests and that may not even know the folks that I'm in touch with because they're large companies and risk and green people don't necessarily talk to each other. Thank you. Interesting. So another another challenge that you know risk and and, and you know, environmental people may not exist in a lot of your customer bases, but I can almost guarantee that you do have situations where there's someone who's interested in your product and someone else who needs it, someone who's interested and someone else who writes the check. And you can actually think of that a little bit like a multi-sided market which is there's one group of people that's probably easier to get to. So, you know, in your case, the sustainability people are probably answering your emails right away. Yes, we care about this a lot. Um, it's great to find out about them, but that is, that is the easier thing. So what you have to think about is what's motivating the other market that you need to get to. And it's probably not going to be sustainability. Uh, we had a similar situation at, at uh, 
so I was able to work with our analytics team and figure out this, you know, of our customer base, here's an estimated number of the customers that we have potentially, that, you know, the customers we have and the number of offices they have in other countries where English is not the primary language. And so you do a little back of the envelope on a map and you say, here's basically representing 10 million users that we can't access today because they do not use English as their primary communication language. Suddenly this became much more interesting. So from the perspective of the people who care, the risk people, it's how do they decide that something is important today? And again, you know, this I'll repeat the same thing about talking to junior level people. Entry level people are more willing to tell you the secrets because no one ever treats them like experts. And they all like everyone likes to be an expert. So you find your junior level compliance person and you say, hey, what does your boss care about? Why does she care about that? How did she make the decision to care about that? What was the number or the rule or the law that makes this important? And try and figure out what characteristics you can share with that. Some people respond to numbers, some people respond to legal threat, everyone responds to something, but you have to figure out what that thing is. And it's often easiest to do that independently of your product. So you're not talking about selling your product, you're not talking about learning about your product, you're just, I want to know more about this kind of person and what makes them tick. one product, and then again and again and again. So you're going to have a hypothesis for each set, 
one, form a hypothesis, talk to a few people, validate. Now, because you have a lot, you probably don't want to do 20 interviews times three or four populations. So kind of intermixing them like doing three one day here, three one day here, three one day here. Now stop and think, are there any big things that you need to reassess? And then keep going. The other thing is, you know, in an ideal world, you'd magically be able to get both sides up at the same time. You'd have a lot of students and a lot of teachers. The thing that I've, you know, I've, uh, I can't take credit for this, but other entrepreneurs I've talked to who are working with multi-sided markets is there's usually one market that's harder to get at. I don't know which it is in your case, but uh, what? Students, okay. So if students are harder to get at, then you're going to want to get the teachers first because you can make more progress there. And so you can learn more and you'll have a more fully formed hypothesis when you get to that harder population. Um, similar things I've seen in uh, healthcare. Doctors are almost impossible to get to, so if there's anyone else in your market, you should talk to those people first and learn as much as possible. Um, let's see, what else can I say about this? Another thing I'd say is to leverage the, when you talk to one person, have them refer you to other people. So you're forming your hypothesis, you're figuring out the hardest people and kind of like, saving those a little bit for last, but there is a certain amount of seesawing back and forth that can help because then you can refer other things. You can say to the teacher, hey, you know, I've talked to 20 students this week and here's the thing that they're hearing, I'm hearing from them. How does this relate to problems that you might have? Are you aware of this? Is this something you can work with? So it does take longer, but you know, the uh, beauty of a multi-sided market is it's something a lot harder for people to compete with you once you've made some progress. So in this case, how does it work as a screen? Or is it like a lifestyle screen of each group every week kind of thing? Or is it do I just focus on nailing what say um, parents for instance is what they're trying to just nail that first and then move on to another section? Or should I just do three a week every day? So how do you schedule your customer development is gonna have a lot to do with how you'll actually do it. Um, I have a lot of recommendations about things, but I find that you know, if you don't like my style of doing things, the risk is that you won't do it and you'll do something else instead. But I would say that you know, the point of a multi-sided market is it's kind of, it's kind of like a bridge. You can't, build, you can't build the bridge partway over without that connecting piece. So if you learned everything there was to learn about parents who wanted sports counseling or computer science tutoring, but there was no one to support that, it would be fundamentally worthless. So yeah, a little bit at a time. In terms of whether you schedule it to have like a day of customer development and then a day of something else is totally dependent on what's most comfortable for you. I would often find it easier to set up like a day of talking to marketers or a day of talking to product managers just because I was kind of in that mindset. Um, I referenced LinkedIn. If I'm using LinkedIn, I'm just doing one search and working my way down all the people with that job title or I'm talking to one person and asking them to refer me to others. So I might do a, you know, a chunk of that and then think about it and then do a chunk the next day. But really it's mostly about what will actually get you out of the building and talking to people.
and most people tend to think that they don't have multi-sided markets, and, and you usually do. There's usually a stakeholder who's invisible. Uh, in, in a lot of your cases, it's not gonna be as critical. It's not gonna be a 50-50, but there's gonna be things like, this is the team who uses your product, but this is a team who it changes their life a little bit. And it's, it's useful to get a at least a little bit of insight into that. Sometimes you can do it in a less uh, time-dense way than interviews. Occasionally you can do things like surveys or just ask one person and then do a survey based off that person. But you know, those little stakeholders tend to matter a lot. Um, and a lot of companies are undone by not thinking about those things. So, you know, again, you, you, guys are, you guys are all setting this up well because that segues into the next thing, which is <laughs> Ashley, who is talking about how to fit customer development into an existing process. And I'll walk to the end here. I work on a product uh, called Waffle, and it's a word tracking tool for software developers. Uh, we've been around for about a year, and we have a good group of early adopters, so we get a lot of feedback from when we go to ship new features that um, are in high demand or uh, solving a problem that we have customer need for. Um, one of the problems that we have is we get a lot of, uh, we do a lot of upfront customer development to figure out um, what, how the best way to solve the problem, show people mock-ups, um, target a subset of users when some of our early adopters get feedback. Um, then we release it and a bunch of people hate it or broke their workflow. Um, so how do we best take that feedback and work it back in, uh, get our engineers working on stuff that they already, you know, we did all that upfront effort on. Um, do you have any tips on how to best deal with that situation? Sure, so this is, this is kind of a problem after my own heart because, you know, I am now in an enterprise and we do a lot of this sort of thing. We learn a lot about a feature that we think is gonna be important and we build it and then we release it and everyone is kind of waiting for their, for their you know, to be patted on the back and that never actually happens. Um, so first of all, it's just, you know, there's, there's a certain importance about building a culture around celebrating learning versus those accolades, because you're not <laughs> gonna get them, and, and that's kind of a lost cause. When we talk about, look, look, we learned this really interesting thing, and getting, you know, finding some confederates, confederates and other teams that will help with that. But, you know, to the ongoing point, there's a couple of things that, that you can do to mitigate that and to recover from it. So first of all is when you're building a feature based on things that customers have asked for, the first thing that we always try and make sure is we understand why they're asking for it and how it will affect their workflow. So to say, okay, that's interesting that you'd like a new bug tracking you know, flag. If you had that, what would you be able to do? Who would use it? In the last week, how many times would you have used this? and get at kind of those details because that can reveal a lot. It might be something that someone asked for and they don't realize that actually 20 people use it and this person is giving you their version according to their workflow and not everyone else's. So understanding that pretty deeply. We also tend to, you know, if possible, we'll show early mocks to people. Now mocks is, it's a little bit over, you know, you can't over rely on that because interaction is often the thing that's most important, especially with something like a workflow tool where you're operating on muscle memory a lot. So there's a limited amount you can get from Box, but we'll do paper prototypes, for example, and we might literally just walk over to someone and have them walk through it. Um, so if you had a couple of customers that you liked particularly who were located close to you, showing them the paper and saying, like, how would you do this? And you can see a lot from body language if people are kind of like, ah. 
And they're not even tapping the paper, they're just hovering over it, then there's probably something a little bit wrong. The other thing is just to, when people get it for the first time, watch them use it. Watch where they're hesitating, ask what they have to relearn, and try and focus on, is this something that they hate because it's different, or is there a, you know, a catastrophic change, like what used to take two clicks, now takes five clicks, and now takes five minutes, and learn that distinction. The other thing is just customers will complain. And there's a certain degree to which we don't want to demonize them. It makes me it makes me very angry when I hear people talk about their dumb customers or their angry customers, like they just don't get it. That's a very toxic attitude. But to normalize the fact that customers complain. Happy customers complain. That sounds like an oxymoron. But a product that you don't use, you don't bother to complain about. You just stop using it gradually over time until you find something else and it goes away. Products that you love, you know, you complain about them. All you have to do is read any like Apple fanboy message board to know that. Apple's got the most passionate users ever and they complain about everything. It's because we rely on our phones. You know, people keep their phones within three feet of them 90% of the time. Of course we're gonna complain, complain about things. So letting people know that complaint is healthy, that complaint means people rely on your software, that can be really, really rewarding. We have engineers do uh, note-taking for us on customer development conversations because we know that engineers are almost never gonna want to go talk to customers themselves, but if you give them a task, they will do that, especially a task that has a time limit. This will be a half an hour. We're gonna call someone on the phone. Here is a template. You can take notes because I can't do a good interview and take notes at the same time. So we have people do that. They always complain the first time. By the second time, they're like, okay, keep me on the list for these. Because that's really valuable to not only hear customers complain, but hear them in context. So this customer complained, 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 and then at the end, inevitably, will say something like, how likely would you be to recommend this to a friend? And they're like, oh, nine out of 10. You're like, okay, that's, hearing those things, you can say it all you want, but hearing a customer actually do that, you're, you know, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks, oh, I tell everyone to use it all the time, that's really, really valuable, and the more you can spread that throughout your team, the better. Can you follow that? All right, thanks. The, uh, the volunteering engineers to do things, we had to bribe them with cupcakes the first time, that works really well. Come, take notes, get a cupcake, um, so I, I recommend that. You don't need to do it all the time. We don't, we don't give most of them cupcakes anymore. All right, uh, let's see, how are we doing on time? We're still pretty good. Um, Emmanuel, who is buying from us? Our marketing is kind of scattershot. I'll let you reword that then. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, part of the firm, my name is Emmanuel Lea, and my sister and I started a product about two and a half months ago, uh, sandmoneycaps.com, and our, the problem we're trying to solve is a bad hair day uh, by preventing our customers from having to wake up with a case of bed hair. So we launched our product, uh, we thought we had our target demographic, who we were going to sell to, we set up our marketing, uh, and it didn't really go so well. At the same time, we had a YouTube blogger actually feature us, and it just blew up. Completely different demographic we never planned for, weren't sure uh, how to handle it. Uh, sold out of all of our inventory, and even before we finished making the next set, we had 350 pre-orders. Uh, so it was clear that was our new, uh, where we were going to go. The problem we have now is we're not really sure who's buying from us and how to market to them. And it's really scattered and we're just a team of pretty much just two of us. Um, four different e-commerce storefronts, uh, five different social media channels, and it seems overwhelming, a little overwhelming to figure out how do we reach our customers and develop them. Great. 
This is actually a problem that hits big companies too. We don't really know who's buying from us, or we don't know who's getting the most value from our product a lot of the times. So uh, this is something that never fails to surprise me. The customers that you think are the most, your product's the most indispensable, they'd die if they couldn't have it, they're never who you think they are. And so there's a lot of value in just asking. So in some cases you might have something like a customer mailing list where you have email addresses or phone numbers for people who are your customers today. That's the best possible scenario because you can, it's easy to get a hold of them. If not though, the interesting thing about your best customers is that they will go out of their way to talk to you. So something like, you know, a tweet that says, hey, do you love our product? Have you bought this for yourself or other people? Let us know and, and, and we'll send you something, a coupon, a, you know, here's a cool article, or even just, we're two people and, and we'd love to talk to you, help us out, because we like to do that. And, and I can say, you know, now especially my job's gotten harder because no one wants to help out Microsoft. That's no fun at all. But helping out a two-person company is something everyone will go out of their way to do. In fact, that's another useful hack. If you are from a big company and you're ever reaching out to people, use your name. Don't say so-and-so research. Don't say so-and-so support. Don't say product. No one cares about that and no one wants to answer that. People respond to things from Cindy. They don't respond to things from Microsoft research. That's terrible. So anyhow, you know, reach out, say, tell us who you are. So the first, that's your first step. Find out who the people are who are buying your product a lot, using your product a lot, or who are willing to respond to a tweet or a Facebook post or something like that. Now that you have those people, you ask them two questions. What do you like best about our product? How does it make your life better? Like something along those lines. What is the most value? What is the single best thing about us? And it's almost always surprising, and it's usually not, if you build software, it's usually not the thing that was the most engineering complex and took you six months to build. Sometimes it's the thing that took you five minutes. Um, and Keith is in the room when I uh, worked with him at Kissmetrics, I remember someone did a bug fix that made it easier to bookmark URLs within the product. I think it literally took an engineer two minutes to write and check in, and I got a stream of emails from people being like, this is the best thing ever! Uh, you know, people were tremendously happy for this ridiculously small thing. So find out what that is that they love about you. And then the other one is how would you describe it to someone you were recommending it to? If you were, if you were telling a friend that this product is great, how would you describe the value you get out of it? And use their words because your words are terrible. Your words are marketing words. Your words are the words of someone who knows this product inside and out. And, and no one resonates with that. It sounds like marketing. But when people say, I love this product because it saves me so much time, it makes me feel powerful, it makes me you know, be able to do this, it makes my job go easier, those words that they're using will, will appeal to other people as well. And I was at that personal finance company and we did a big redesign and we were trying to figure out how to market and we talked to people about what they liked best about it. And we were thinking it was going to be technology related things. Uh, this, this was Yodely, and we uh, powered Mint. So if any of you use Mint.com, basically, the cool stuff about Mint, but not quite as well designed, was the stuff we were talking about. And so we thought, automatic transaction categorization, categorization. That's so awesome, people will love that. Automatically figuring out what percentage of your network is in which place and displaying it in a pie chart. That's what people will talk about. The thing that people said universally, I love this, it gives me a feeling of control. 
And that's the most hand-wavy, wishy-washy thing I've ever heard of. I never would have said this gives me a feeling of control. When we put that on the website, use this and take control of your finances, we saw, we saw sign-ups just go through the roof. Ridiculous. No one in the entire company would have come up with that word, but that was the word that worked. So when you talk to your customers, the people who are out there watching your YouTube video and buying this product for them or the 10 of their friends, and they say, I love this because you know, I've never had a bad hair day since, or I don't even have to think about how I roll up, whatever their words are, use it. Yeah. Anything else? All right. And then we kind of say, is this, does this fit in 
line with it? Do we interpret from these results that people have a hard time keeping track of things, or that people feel self-conscious about certain behaviors, or just that people are, are very time-constrained? Like, for one thing, we talked to a bunch of people working in retail. Oh, they're not for Yammer customers because they don't sit in front of a computer all day. But we wanted to understand how they dealt with problems. And we found that actually people working in retail situations are just like very extreme versions of information workers. They're like you on your busiest day where you have a meeting and then you've got another meeting in two minutes and you're trying to do things on your phone and walk and talk at the same time. So the problems they had, we say, well, this is just like them magnified and they're having a problem typing in long messages. Maybe that means we should make the voice dictation. I mean, you can voice dictate right now, but it's not obvious. Maybe we should make that obvious. Or a lot of these people are taking photos and sharing them, and the reason that they're doing that is because they feel self-conscious about typing a message. So, huh, maybe other people feel that way too. Maybe we should just look at making photo sharing really easy, because once you photo share, then the friction is down. So we're gonna roll it into the core product and test it out on, on normal people, on those same people. Uh, but we're also uh, kind of shifting new users versus existing users. So the new users is a much smaller target base, so it's a bad A-B testing sample. But we're, we're kind of accepting that it's not as good data and saying, if something works really, really well for new users, but maybe less well for this polluted population, we're gonna put a little thumb on the scale of the new users.
worked and they need to be willing to talk to you about what worked, or if there are cases where someone you know, bought software and introduced it into technology, was there something that made that decision easier? Uh, and I think the an analog, which is you know a little bit removed, is I remember when we were trying to get people to install uh, software, we found that one of the big barriers was that they would say, oh, it's just a line of JavaScript. Well, the person who puts that JavaScript in is an engineer, and that engineer, when you ask them to put something in, no matter how short it is, you say, well, if someone were to ask you to install one line of JavaScript on our website, what would you worry about? And oh, they got a whole list of things. They're like, oh, well, if I saw this email, I'd probably see it when I was like walking on my phone, but I wouldn't answer it right now because I'd want to get home and I'd want to inspect the JavaScript and make sure it wasn't bad. I'd want to run it and see how, you know, how, uh, how many cycles it took, but it's going to slow things down. I want to ask, you know, will it work with this other thing that I already have? In short, there was like a whole list of things that they needed to think about before they could say yes or no. And we actually wrote up an FAQ uh, predicting all of those things and saying, and we told product managers, here you go, here's an email. Don't just send the code, send this to your developer. And we've pro, you know, we preempted most of their questions. And that did help a lot with kind of buying it. So I feel like purchasing software might be the same thing of people saying, you know, we can't do it because it's hard to expense, because it has no validators, because we don't know anyone else who's used it. Whatever those things are, if you can find them and preemptively address some of them, that that's something that's I would probably put it on the site, but I would also use the opportunity during a sales pitch to make it a little bit more like an interview and say, here's some stuff we've learned from other people who are buying technology. Does this resonate with you? And they might say, no, I, you know, I don't care about this thing at all. And now you have some piece of data. And, and when you talk about people's problems more as opposed to, hey, we have a thing to sell you, you know, more often than not, the conversation ends with, so I do kind of want to buy this thing, or I at least want to learn more about it. So sell a solution. So hopefully this has been helpful to more of you so you can think about how your specific problems can be addressed in this way. A lot of this stuff is just really kind of creative problem solving that may or may not have been done before. Um, when you're stuck with things, for things that I haven't addressed, and, and you know, I know there's tons of problems that you might all run into that I haven't addressed. You know, this sounds silly, but my best piece of advice is find another smart person who isn't you and ask them. Because non-experts are really good at coming up with solutions because they don't know what's actually possible. And you know, I talked about engineers being in, in listening in and taking notes on our customer development sessions. You know, a lot of times they'll come up with a solution that ends up working or is the germ of something that works because they don't know design theory. They don't know typography. They don't know whatever the thing is. They just know that like, this seems useful. And you know, the same thing works for physical products and hardware and software. It's like, I don't know how my TV works. And that means that I'm actually not gonna give you a suggestion that's constrained by the knowledge of how it works. I'm gonna say something that's crazy, but since you do know how that product or industry works, you can take that crazy thing and kind of rejigger it until it's something that works. So if you're a big company, find someone, you know, find friends in another department and ask them. If you have new employees joining, they're an awesome source of uh, asking questions and showing ideas because they're eager to please. They're a new employee, but they also don't know anything about your company yet. Uh, so we, we, we're good friends with the onboarding people, my research team, and so we ask every week, like, who's starting that's new? And inevitably, we will be at their desk. Hi, welcome to Yammer. Let me show you some paper prototypes. 
or hi, how would you solve this problem? And we get really good results out of that. If you're early stage, if you're just starting up, just find a friend, find an accountability buddy. That's good for you anyways, because it's gonna be hard to do this stuff, and someone questioning you is gonna be helpful. But that person might say, you know, I don't know anything about education, but, you know, could you try doing this thing? And that thing will be probably a good source. So, thank you all, and, you know, good luck, and I hope you enjoy.